0: Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today we begin a new study in the book of Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew, or just according to Matthew, as it was first called in Greek. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers And Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as I normally suggest with any genealogy in scripture, as you deal with it with your kids, read the names. Have them call out the names that they recognize. And if you have the chance, let them tell you the stories okay you recognize the name Judah where do you know that name from just let them share it's a great way to review the Old Testament great way to understand Scripture together and as they share then you can share and you can help build up their knowledge of some of the history here that's going on you can also talk with this genealogy as it points us to Jesus are the ancestors of Jesus perfect The answer to that question is no, not even close. If they were, he wouldn't have had to come. He comes to save sinners, and his family tree is filled with sinners. Thankfully, we've been grafted into that tree, to use the language of Paul and Romans. You're going to find the mention of some women in the list. Tamar makes the list. Genesis chapter 38 and how she pretends to be a prostitute, seduces her father-in-law to have sons by him. Not good. Judah admits it himself that she's more righteous than he is, which isn't saying much for either of them. Then Rahab makes the list. Rahab's a prostitute for her occupation. Ruth makes the list. She's a foreigner. She's been brought in. The wife of Uriah, not mentioned by name, Bathsheba, who agrees to an affair with the king. All of the men in the list are sinners too. Abraham pretends that his, his wife Sarah is just his sister and pawns her off that way, twice, allowing her to be brought into the house of other men. Isaac plays favorites with his sons, causing all kinds of family dilemmas and dramas, and he also makes dad's mistake and pawns off his wife as his sister. They both seem to have played the same trick on the same king. The list could go on and on. We could talk about their sin for ages. And that's not the point. The point is that Christ came to save them from that sin. These are saints because Jesus has rescued them, just as he has rescued us. Now, you could also talk about your own family tree if you want. Try to make a a genealogy, a tree for yourselves, and see how far back you can trace it. That could be a fun family project with this text. Now, Matthew is a numbers guy. He's a tax collector. Numbers are in his thing. And he, as he looks at it, Divides the genealogy of Jesus into three groups of 14. Now notice he doesn't predate Abraham here. He starts with Abraham in 2166 BC. So, yeah, lots of stories you can track. Abraham's Genesis 11 to 25, Isaac is Genesis 20 to 35, Jacob is Genesis 25 to 49, Jude, Judah and his brothers, Genesis 37 to 50, Perez and Zerah, Genesis 38. Hezron, Genesis 46, Aram, Ruth 4, verse 19, Aminadab, Ruth four nineteen again, Nashon, mentioned in Numbers 1 and 2, there's actually some stuff written about him. He offered a large sacrifice, he was the chief of his people. He's even called prince of the sons of Judah in First Chronicles chapter 2, verse 10. His son, Salmon, and Rahab, Salmon mentioned in Ruth chapter 4, Rahab in Joshua 2 and Joshua 6, Salmon, giving birth to Boaz then. Uh, Boaz and Ruth, the whole book of Ruth covering that topic. Obed, mentioned in Ruth 4 and 1 Chronicles 2. Jesse, 1 Samuel chapter 6, as Samuel comes to visit and select Israel's next king. He's also brought up in the prophecy of the Messiah that shows up in Isaiah chapter 11. David, the one of Uriah, his wife Bathsheba. David's in 1 Samuel verse, chapter 16 all the way up through 1 Kings 2, Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, again in 1 Kings 1 and 2. Psalm 51 is written in the aftermath of their affair, as the Lord uh, struck down their, their child. Solomon, 2 Samuel 5 uh, and 12, also extensively in 1 Kings 1 through 11, he wrote Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon and most of the book of Proverbs for us. Rehoboam, First Kings eleven through fifteen. Abijah, First Chronicles three. Asaph is probably the same as Asa in First Kings fifteen. Jehoshaphat, First Kings fifteen and twenty-two. Joram's in First Chronicles three. Uzziah, Second Kings fifteen. Jotham, same chapter, Second Kings fifteen. Ahaz, Second Kings sixteen. Hezekiah, Second Kings eighteen through twenty. Got a line of some kings here. Manasseh. Second Kings 21, Amos or Ammon from Second Kings 21, Josiah, Second Kings 22, Jeconiah and his brothers, First Chronicles 3, Salethiel or Shealtiel, seen in First Chronicles 3, Ezra 3, Zerubbabel in Ezra 2 through 5, and again in Nehemiah 7 and 12 as he helps to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. The second temple is named after him. As we talk about the temples in Israel's history, we'll talk about Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple, and then the one that Herod refurbished, refinished, rebuilt. Hard to really say exactly what Herod undertook for that temple that is there in the time of Jesus. And then after that in verse 13, we get into the intertestamental period, the time between the Old and the New Testament where we don't have any biblical writings, so we don't know as much about the men in that section until we get to verse 16. Joseph. Now we're in the New Testament, and now we're caught up. There is a major shift in language here, by the way. The word beget in Greek shows up 39 times in the chapter. The ESV likes to take it as father. But it's always active. Salmon fathered Boaz. It was an active verb. Salmon did the work, right, as he and his wife doing what husband and wife do to procreate, having sex, the gift of God to marriage. However, when we get to Jesus in verse 16, suddenly the, the v- verb for beget is no longer active but passive. Jesus is begotten, but there is no earthly father. So the very, very unique shift in the verb language by Matthew is important to point that out. Matthew's intentional in that. The Holy Spirit, as he inspires the Word, is intentional in doing so. So, divided into 14 generations, three groups. The first group, Abraham to David. Abraham's born 2166 BC. David, 1040 BC. So, over a thousand-year gap there. The second group is smaller, as David to the deportation is 1040 to 587 BC. The patriarchs lived longer, so that the, the Age at first birth of a child is shrinking here, unlike our own lifetime where it's increasing. And then from the deportation to the birth of Jesus, roughly 6 BC, you've got another 580-ish years there. Now, if you read this genealogy and you also read Luke's genealogy, you'll notice they, they match for a while, but then they diverge from each other. They don't end up matching all the way. The reason for that. There could be a couple. The, the easiest solution is simply that Matthew is tracking Joseph and Luke is tracking Mary. Luke actually takes the genealogy of Mary and then gives us Jesus. That would make sense. It would make good sense for why the last several generations in each genealogy don't match. Because they are from the same tribe. They're from the tribe together of Judah but ultimately a couple, husband and wife. All right, so the rest of the text here, then the shorter section, is the actual birth account of Jesus, which is short in Matthew's account. He doesn't spend a lot of time here. It took place in this way. His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. That makes them husband and wife in their culture's eyes. There's actually a ceremony of engagement, but after that there's a period usually of a few months, where the couple doesn't actually come together. They don't come into the house together. They don't become fully man and wife, that is, consummating the marriage, until that point. The whole community knows when that time is supposed to be. Now, I'm going to try to keep this brief. There's a lot of argument and debate about whether Mary and Joseph ever had sex and whether they have other children together. And keeping it brief, my main point's this, it's a distraction. The devil wants to point you away from Jesus Christ, even if it means pointing you to somebody close by him. The more we focus on Mary, the less we focus on Jesus. The more we argue about Mary, the less we focus on Jesus. Bear that in mind. Personally, I believe Mary had other children. Why? Why? The Bible uses the word children, sons, that she had other children in the future accounts of Scripture. Mark chapter 6, we learn Jesus has brothers. There's James, Jude, Judas, there's Joseph, there's Simon, and sisters. Argument is that word can also mean cousin. Can it? Sure. Does it normally? No, it normally means brother. Brother. Here, in this text, before they came together, seems to imply they did come together, as does verse 25, he knew her not until, seems to imply a change once she gave birth. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. The goal seems to be for some to preserve the perfection of Mary. It is a view that sex, even within marriage, is bad, that it would somehow defile Mary to have had sex. Theologically that's simply not true. Sex is a good gift God gives to husband and wife. So if Mary had other children, she had other children, thanks be to God. If she remained a virgin for the rest of her life, she remained a virgin the rest of her life, thanks be to God. It's not worth the argument that so many people make it to be and that they have over. It. Instead, what we want to focus on, the Savior's born. <laughs> Christ our king has come, right? That's the big news. That's the big deal. So Joseph finding out that she's pregnant, knowing it's not him, seeks to divorce her, but being a, a righteous man himself. I know the text here says just, it can be just or righteous. He seeks to do the, the the right thing, the good thing. He doesn't seek to wrong her. He doesn't want to hurt her. He doesn't want to hurt the child. So he seeks to put her away, to send her away, quietly, privately, not make a public spectacle of it, not have her um, stoned to death, for example, which is a possible punishment for adultery. But an angel appears to him in a dream and tells him otherwise, that this is a gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has conceived this child and invites Joseph to rise to wake up, to take her as his wife, and he does. That's something we can credit. I mean, he's called righteous here, and we connect that to faith, right? He's a man of faith. He believes in God. He trusts in God. And we're going to see that over these first couple of chapters as long as we see Joseph. An angel of God commands him, and he does it. He wakes up, and he does it. He does it here. He'll do it when the angel warns him in the next chapter as well. There's good to be said for Joseph, as well as for Mary, uh, as we see in Luke's gospel more, more so than we do here in, in this one. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's the, like, the key note of the chapter. In the Old Testament, the name of God is Yahweh. It shows up nearly 7,000 times. It is Hebrew. It means he is. Whenever you say Yahweh, you're confessing your faith. It's a tremendous thing. But as we come to the New Testament, very first book, very first chapter, we get to Matthew 1, we see the name Jesus given of God. The name by which we should call him. Just as it was essentially said in Exodus 3, this is the name that we're to call God. Well, now we have a new name to call him. We're to call him Jesus, which means he saves. It's from the Hebrew verb, yesha, to save Yeshua is the the name form which is Joshua when we translate that into English and as Yeshua is translated from Hebrew into Greek becomes Jesus which from Greek into English becomes Jesus in case you were curious on how all that works Jesus he saves whenever we say the name of Jesus we're confessing our faith as Christians we're confessing that we believe he saves us this is what he's come to do this is why he's here just like everybody we talked about in the family tree being sinners he came to save them so it is with us you and I are sinners and yet Jesus came to rescue us from that sin he came to save us next Matthew's gonna point out all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Matthew's gonna love to point us to Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled and this is the first one in his gospel he takes us to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, a very familiar verse for us as Christians. We hear it a lot, especially in the season of Christmas. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, what's interesting about this verse in particular is that at the time, most likely, there wasn't a single Jew who expected that to happen. I say that because oftentimes in the Old Testament, the prophecies had an immediate time fulfillment. They were fulfilled somehow locally, and then they were fulfilled often greater in Jesus. Maybe I should turn that around. They were sometimes fulfilled locally, they were always fulfilled greater in Jesus. How's that? Twofold prophecy idea. The picture with Isaiah 7 is that God comes to the wicked king Ahaz and offers him a sign, anything he wants, as proof that God will care for him and for his country. But Ahaz wants nothing to do with it. And so God speaks to Ahaz, who's concerned at the moment about two foreign kings, the king of Israel to the north, and also the king of Syria. So Rezin, king of Syria, Pekah, uh, king of Israel. He's concerned that they've allied with each other and they've come to destroy Jerusalem. So Yahweh speaks to him, gives him that opportunity. He turns it down. So Yahweh says that he will give him a sign himself. And that's what we just read about the virgin conceiving and bearing a son. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. ends up being a prophecy of judgment, judgment that will happen during Ahaz's lifetime. So it would appear historically that the Jews expected, believed that this prophecy was fulfilled by a child being born in Ahaz's own home. The word virgin that's used specifically in the Hebrew text there can refer to a woman who is married but has yet to have a child. So a wife of the king who hasn't born a son yet is going to bear a son, and before that son has even had the chance to grow up, these two foreign kings are going to be destroyed. Some believe it to be Hezekiah. I'm not sure the math works well on that. The point, though... Nobody's looking for this to happen. Nobody's nobody's looking for it to be fulfilled, but Matthew says that it is. The Holy Spirit inspired the gospel, right, just as he inspired the Old Testament as well. This is God's word. So while it might have been expected to have been done in Isaiah's time, in Ahaz's time, it ultimately points to Jesus. If there is a son in Isaiah's day, there's a greater son in Jesus, who is Emmanuel, God with us. What a promise that is, what a hope that is, that God would take on flesh and dwell among us. As I said before, Joseph showing himself faithful, righteous, that he wakes up from sleep and does what the angel told him. He takes Mary as his wife, she'll give birth to a son, and he calls his name Jesus. Does everything he's been told, And we get the birth of our savior matthew chapter one the whole point is to point us to our lord and savior jesus christ who came who came into this world to rescue us from sin death and the devil and that'll be the focus of the rest of the book